Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Today we discuss why you cannot dream yourself into a character, you must hammer and forge yourself into one. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are going to be doing a little bit of a homebrew workshop. We're going to be talking about what makes a good character. This is going to be a two-part series. The first one, the one we're doing today, is going to be focusing more on player characters. And then next week we're going to focus a little bit more on NPCs. So more tips for a dungeon master or a game master or a storyteller to develop more dynamic characters on their side of the table. That said, the stuff that we're going to be coming up with today, they're all things that you can use whenever you're creating your NPCs, but these go a little bit more into the specifics on what makes a good player character, someone who is going to be a focal point for the story and not just a recurring NPC. Right. Kind of like we joked last week, making a character with character. This is a character-based story. Your player characters, the story does really revolve around them. And so how you build your character up, how you're going to interact with your other characters and the other players at the table, how they're going to interact with each other within the game. These are all things to consider on making the game flow and run correctly. Right. I guess that brings us into the first point, which is what makes a good character. Personally, I think that there are three aspects that really make a good character. The first is a depth of personality, something that is more than just a surface cliche, something that actually feels like a real person. And we'll get more into how to develop that depth of personality as we go on. But you want something that is more than just a cookie cutter that's standing in for a bag of hit points and attack dice. I don't know. If you look at Jinji from Shrek, that was a great cookie cutter character. But Jinji had depth of character. Jinji did have depth of character. This is true. The second thing is... I couldn't really come up with a good term for this, but gradual maturity, a character that develops over time. Your character should never be in their final stage at level one. They should always have room to grow as the storyline progresses because a real person is shaped by the events that they go through in their life. And so the events that happen in your story should affect how your character develops and vice versa. And the third and probably the most important thing is a character should be something that you want to play. It should be a concept that you find entertaining, a concept that you find enjoyable, something that you're not going to dread sitting down at the table like, oh man, I gotta play this character again. I really wish that we would finish up this story so I could roll something new. When that happens, I think we've all played that character once or twice where we had an idea for a character and it didn't quite flush out the way we thought it Yeah, I mean, it does happen. And at that point, once you've reached the bottom of that well, it gets really hard if everyone else at the table wants to keep going and you're just not feeling that character anymore. Really, if you want to think about what makes a good character, think about your favorite characters, either in movies or books or stories. What made them memorable? Let's look at someone like Spider-Man. I mean, Spider-Man's kind of quirky and meow, but when he first gets bit by the spider, he's kind of, you know, a little bit of a young punk. And he's still a punk through most of Marvel and most of the comics. That's fine. But he does a bit of maturing. You know, he has the point where he realizes that, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, that his choices affected someone else poorly. That was a point of growth for Spider-Man. And then, you know, you have different things with, like, his metamorphosis, where he becomes the man-spider thing, or with Venom. So there was times throughout 
the comics where Spider-Man himself even changed. Look at Iron Man through the Avengers series. How Tony Stark was at the first Iron Man versus how Tony Stark finished the Infinity Wars. He was a vastly different person. That character grew and transformed over time. He was still snarmy. He was still snarky. He was still super rich. He was still hyper-intelligent. But yet the character still changed and grew and developed. Absolutely. Another example would be Luke Skywalker from the original Star Wars trilogy. The story would not have been nearly as entertaining or nearly as exciting if Luke had just started off as a Master Jedi. That'll bring us to, not necessarily this tangent, but that'll bring us to the things to avoid whenever you're creating a character. Now, I want to preface this by saying there are no hard and fast rules from a role play side on what to do when you're creating your character. You do you, but there are some guidelines that are pretty ironclad that you want to avoid violating, mostly for the enjoyment of everyone else at the table. The first archetype to avoid is the asshole. I don't get to play now? <laughs> I'm not talking about the player, James. I'm talking about the character. Don't create a character that's going to do something that's going to upset the party, and then you're going to respond to it by, but that's what my character would do. That is lazy character development. Luke over at the DM Lair recently released a rant video about these sorts of players, whose character only exists to antagonize the rest of the party. The guy who is going to slip ahead of the party into the room and loot all of the treasure chests and then not tell anybody about anything that they found. That sort of person is the kind of character that you want to avoid. The characters that are going to push another character off a cliff. Characters who are going to steal from another character's pack while they sleep. These are the sorts of characters that you don't necessarily want to play because they don't promote cooperative gameplay at the table. And while the story is about the characters, it's about all of the characters, about the group. In many role-playing games, while you can play one-on-one, -on -one, and if that's what you're doing, you can find a DM and play one-on-one -on -one if that's your thing, but you're generally playing with a group of four or five others. And I'm not telling you that you can't prank the other players. I'm not telling you that you can't have fun or running conflicts with your other players to bring up the critical role example again from season one the rivalry between grog and vax specifically surrounding grog's beard and how vax one time went and just shaved half of grog's beard off that is a fun little hijinks thing that's not actually affecting the way that the character is played you're not doing irrevocable harm to the other character. It's just a little bit of fun between friends. I think a fun example we had with a game we ran was, and again, it was with Magnus. We had our barbarian that had a lower intel and tended to be drunk. So in his drunken stupor one night, I stole one of his boots. Just one boot. And when he woke up, he was in very much a rage about missing the boot, which I happily kept. And then, you know, throughout the gameplay session, whenever we needed a little extra muscle from the barbarian, I said to her, Hey, I think you stole your boot. That is why Magnus is the procurer of boots. Was it a douchey thing to steal the character's boot? Yes. But was it a critical thing the person needed? No. How often do you actually think if your character's wearing footwear or not? The player also knew me, so we knew it was all in good humor. And it wasn't like it was an enchanted pair of boots or anything. It was just a simple, common pair of boots. So it wasn't affecting the character mechanically 
to take one of his boots. And the important thing to realize here, and a point that I really need to drive home, is you need to make sure that the other player is okay with it before you do these sorts of things. You always want to make sure that the other player is in on it and that they're okay with these hijinks because you don't want to put that player in a situation where they feel like they're losing agency with their character. Exactly. We're laughing with friends, not at friends at this point. And like you said, with agency, I think that's a really big concept in the game too. Is nobody wants to have the reins ripped from them, especially with their own character. That gets a little far. That'll ruin the game for any player really fast. That's also a really good piece of advice for DMs. I don't want to say never because there are very limited instances where you can, but you shouldn't take agency away from the player. The player controls the character. You control everything else. Be happy with controlling everything else. Don't take agency away from the player because that character is your player's world. And if you take that agency away from them, they're not going to have fun playing. The second archetype that I would recommend avoiding is the Mary Sue. For those of you who don't know this concept, it is a pretty common video game RPG, usually a fantasy young adult story kind of reference to a character that has no meaningful flaws. The example that I like to use for this, and I'm probably going to get some flack for this because this particular anime has a pretty vehement fan base, is Kirito from the anime Sword Art Online. I don't know, James, if you've seen that particular anime. I've seen some of them. I was not a huge fan of Sword Art Online personally. My wife was a very big fan. I think she watched the first two seasons. I watched the first season. I was like, this is all right. It got a little cringy in the second half of the first season. And then I went and watched it again, like three, four months later. And I realized just how cringy the entire show was. It definitely does not pass uh, what is the Bechdel test where, see here, where two female characters converse with one another about uh, something other than one of the male characters. I think that's the Bechdel test. I was going to say, I thought there were several aspects of the Bechdel test. Yeah, there are several aspects of the Bechdel Like, they test. had to have a purpose, they had to have an interest in something other than just a male character. They had to have a reason for being there that wasn't a male character. Hey, we need a love interest, let's throw a female character in. It's um, cheap, yeah. easy writing. And especially as the series progressed, it got worse and worse. The female characters basically ended up all becoming his harem by the end of everything. It was kind of disappointing, really. And it was always a damsel in distress sort of situation where he would come to their rescue or, you know, have some big angst because he couldn't come to their rescue or he couldn't save them or what have you. And there's a scene in the first half of season one where he ends up getting access to the mainframe for the entire game. And he has this short little window of time to access the source code of the game. And apparently he's a good enough programmer to be able to just look at the source code of the game and immediately be able to do whatever he wants to in the game. And instead of doing something reasonable, like flipping a zero to a one to turn on the option for everybody to be able to log out of the game, he ends up taking a user interface that 
has been following them around and assisting them that is about to get deleted and converts it into an item to put into his pocket. But Kirito is an example of a Mary Sue. He is automatically the best at everything in the game. He's able to pull skills just out of nowhere to automatically be good at something. He has no real discernible flaws, or if he does have them, they're like, he doesn't play well with others. You know, that's not really a flaw, especially not whenever you're making it to where he doesn't have to rely on others. Yeah, no, I definitely get to where you're going with that. That is the issue. And you find it, particularly with young adult novels, you'll find it a lot. Yeah, like Hunger Games, kind of with Katniss or something like that. But generally, even in Hunger Games, you had the character. Well, I mean, they were a little bit better with it than many. But the whoever's the fount of knowledge or the source of wisdom is they know everything and they can pull stuff out of absolutely nowhere just because they need that trope or they need that mechanic for their story. So, oh, and this character can do this, too. And then suddenly, you know. Your character who lives in the backwoods suddenly knows how to ride a motorcycle in an urban environment and be perfectly fine or do whatever. And it's just, again, where you said they have no flaws and they can instantly do anything just because the story requires a new scene for whatever reason. And granted, the mechanics side of D&D will prevent a certain amount of that because you're going to have some skills that you're good at and some skills that you're not just from the mechanics side, but from a storytelling side, you also have to play in why they're good at these skills, why they're bad at other skills. An extension of the Mary Sue, one that I was hinting at in my analysis of Kirito, is the edgelord or the lone wolf. That is the character that every 15-year-old boy tries to make with the black trench coat and the two swords that just doesn't need to rely on anybody. I realize that is a gross stereotype, but some stereotypes have a basis in reality. I made this character. I know lots of people who have made this character. I have a really hard time when I play VTM games not making this character. And a lot of that has to do with the mechanics and how the lore of VTM itself works. But this is really, really hard for me, particularly, like I said, with the VTM mechanics, personally. And then the last one that I want to caution you against is drawing from stereotypes. We talked about this a little bit in our cultural appropriation video. Stereotypes can be okay if they are done in such a way that allows your character progression to subvert the stereotype. But you want to make sure that you avoid harmful stereotypes. If you're making a Native American character, don't make them an alcoholic bum. Absolutely. I think what it comes down to, and I say this with a lot of stories that I have issue with sometimes, one of my wife's favorite and least favorite at the same time books is Watership Down. And if you've not read the book, it's actually, I don't know, I had a hard time with the book. The concept of the story is great, but I was reading this book and it's one of the few that I couldn't finish and my wife asked me why I couldn't finish it. And I'm like, it's about a bunch of bunnies and at the end of the day, I just don't care about any of these bunnies. Walking Dead, I kind of had the same issue with. I know there's a lot of fan with Walking Dead. I'll joke there should be less walking and more dead, but you've got the story of all the people running around and trying to survive zombies, and at the end of the day, I just don't care about any of the bunnies. You have to make people care about your character. You have to care about your character. The other people at the table should care at least a little bit about your character because you're working with them. There's some interaction there. And a way to make the other people at the table care about your character is by taking... You can start from a stereotype and then put twists on it to 
garner a little bit of interest for that character for why they're different because it's the differences that catch your attention and the differences that you're not expecting that end up making a character memorable. So for an example, let's say a ranger or a druid character. You don't really necessarily want to make a ranger or druid character that's just a bohemian flower child vegan hippie. What you can do though is you can make a ranger or druid who is a hippie you know, have this whole commune with the earth sort of deal. They're okay with eating meat. They get upset whenever you waste parts of the animal. So, you know, killing something and not using all of the parts of the animal would be something that they would find offensive. Or conversely, with agriculture, allowing food to go to rot would upset them. You know, harvesting more than what you can use and being wasteful about it. You could have a barbarian that might be fighting a foe at some point, but they might respect how well that person fights, concept of like an honored foe, that yeah, they want to go and they smash everything, and it's not out of rage, but they enjoy that challenge, you know, so they're wanting to find that person that can push them or challenge them to a point. And bringing up barbarians, you don't necessarily have to play the big dumb barbarian. If you look at Conan, who is the archetypical barbarian, I would argue, Conan is not a big, dumb person. He's big, but he's not a big, dumb person. He is very intelligent. He almost acts more like a rogue in a lot of cases than he does a barbarian. He does. He actually starts off as a rogue if you look at the old Schwarzenegger movies. Scaling the tower and sneaking in. He doesn't do what we would consider the archetypical barbarian thing and smash down the door and kill everybody on his way up the stairs. He relies on his stealth and his cunning and his guile. As well as his partners to hold up those back ends of the areas that he can't fill in himself. Right, so I think that pretty well establishes those are the things that I would strongly encourage you avoid whenever you're developing a character. So avoid harmful stereotypes, avoid Mary Sue or Edgelord archetypes, and don't be an asshole. Good fundamental rules to start with. So where should you start? There are a couple of different ways to start off a new character, just as there are things to avoid. You may have a mechanical concept within the mechanical side of the game that you want to explore, and so that can give you a base framework around which to build your character. A race-class combination, or a multi-class combination, or just a specific archetype that you want to develop as your character progresses. For instance, my wizard that I have mentioned a couple of times, I have a Warforged wizard. He started off as a human wizard, and by a botched contingency, ended up getting trapped inside of the Iron Golem, where he was storing his contingency. And so now he is effectively a 97-year-old man trapped in an immortal iron golem body. And that all came from the initial concept was a lich using an iron golem as a phylactery. That was the base concept that I was starting from, and then I tweaked it a little bit as I went on and ended up turning it into a player character. Right. You need to find that seed of your story. You have to have that base idea of of a bird yelling at me, apparently. That base idea of what you want of what you want your character to be and how they're going to play and interact with their world. Something like you want to play a, a kobold monk who is chaotic good. You know, a, a chaotic good character in a kobold who 
by the book is lawful evil. Just taking that archetype, that alignment, flipping it completely on its head, and then having a chaotic character going into a monk class that is typically lawful because of adherence to a monastic code. These are all things that you can adjust and adjust isn't the word I'm looking for. It's basically experimentation. Throwing the spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks. Exactly. With Tasha's coming out, they've got the new druid circle of the Myconids. I think that's what they're calling it. The mushroom druids. Circle of spores. Circle Circle of spores. spores. There we go. Yes. The circle of spores druid would be really interesting to do, particularly with the druid and they're wanting to keep neutrality. Having the circle of spore druid come around and talk about how death and decay are in fact part of the balance of life. And how everyone's too eager to cast a heal over a new and bring back and restore. But there's a time where we have to let things go and rot because that way new growth can come and building a character around that. Right. And play off of that. One of my favorite deities in Forgotten Realms is Kelimvor because Kelimvor is a non-evil god of death. He is the god that his followers ensure the natural progression of life to death. They ease people in their transition from life to death and they are quite violent against necromancy but so many of the death gods in D across all the different settings aberon greyhawk forgotten realms dark sun most of the gods of death are portrayed as being evil when death is a natural progression from life it is something that has to happen at the end of everything and so death in and of itself is not evil there are certain aspects of death you know murder is evil and there are gods that you know advocate murder and torture and butchery and all of the conquest gods tend towards the evil side but there is a certain natural progression for death I like the neutral death gods for that very reason. I do as well. I'd say one series that handled a neutral death god really well, I think, was the uh, Song of Ice and Fire books, the uh, Game of Thrones books. The Faceless God, they don't cover it as much in the series, but in the book they'd go into considerable more detail. So people would go, and then when they were ready for whatever reason, they would bring their donation, and they were given basically an eased release. And the whole thing started because they were... A group of miners and they were wishing for death because their existence was so bad so there were priests of quote quote the faceless one that would go and if a miner was broken or he couldn't work or he was hurting too much or whatever then they would give them that release and again that is a very neutral calm you know it wasn't a sinister way of death it was just a sleepy time now here you go and so we've tied together the two points that i was going to make the two ends of the spectrum where I would start are either the mechanical concept or the narrative concept. So we've talked a lot about blending the two, and it usually does end up being a blending of the two. You don't typically start at one end of the spectrum or the other. Typically, you have a concept and you think, oh, this class would be really cool for that. Or you see a class and you think, oh, this concept would be really cool for that. And then there's the third way. And then there's the The third third way, which is... The third way what happens when you have to, you know, you get asked to work a little extra late at work and then you're picking up pizza for the group and they're behind and now you're in traffic jam and you get to the table and you just didn't have time to think up your character so what are you going to do random rolls throw dice at the table yeah this is really good for generating characters for one shots 
I've had to create characters for several one shots before back before COVID made this impossible. I used to run the occasional one shot at the library where my wife works. And so I would have to come up with four third level characters that'll play nice together for this one shot. And so here I am. I just sort of throw some stuff together and just throw a bunch of dice at the table and see what I end up getting. If you really just want a completely random character, and this is something that we're going to do a little bit later, you can find lists with all of the personality traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws from the player's handbook. I just went and googled D&D 5e, and then personality traits, ideals, bonds, flaws, and someone has pulled everything out of the book and just made a numbered list, and then you just roll randomly on that list and pick out what you want for your character. I mean, you can build a really solid character with those lists. If you just, inspiration is not talking to you today, the muses are not singing your song, you're not going to go wrong with using these for the most part. And to a lesser extent, one thing that I really like doing, because whenever you go into the background section in the player's handbook, and whenever you go into, I think it's Xanathar's has some additional backgrounds. There are some additional backgrounds in several of the other books. When you go into the backgrounds, they'll give you a list of traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws. And you can roll off of that if you know what background you want to pick. Or if you just look at the list of backgrounds and say, that one sounds cool, let's just pull from that. You can roll on that. Or what I like to do is you just go through that list and pick which one appeals to you. Absolutely. And again, at the end of the day, if you're playing a game, the game should be fun. And now that I've mentioned it, we're going to go into what I'm calling the four pillars of a well-rounded character, which is your personality traits, your ideals, your bonds, and your flaws. And we're going to go through each of these one at a time and sort of explain a little bit on what each one of these is. The first one is your personality traits. Your personality traits are how does your character present themselves to the world? What is their demeanor? What's their tone of voice? How do they deal with people of different races? Are they introverted versus extroverted? Your personality traits are how your character interacts with the world around them and how the world around them perceives them. And you don't have to have an idea for absolutely every situation, but you can have an idea for most ideas, you know, or generalities is what I would say. Right. And it should be a very general thing because it gives you a basic guideline to draw from whenever you're doing your role play because your role play is going to be very improvisational because you don't know where the DM is going to go with the story until the DM goes there. And then the second of the four pillars is your ideals. So your ideal is what does your character believe in? And this is more than just is your character a member of a faith? This is, is there a certain code of ethics that they believe in? Is there a general code of conduct that they follow? Are there certain truths that they hold to be more important than others? Do they believe in faith? Do they believe in karma? Do they believe that might makes right? Do they believe in logic? Exactly. Or do they think, you know, what about situational ethics? You know, this is okay for now because I need something now. Do they believe that Anything good comes from themselves and they shouldn't rely on anybody. Yeah, things like, do the ends justify the means? Most of your moral dilemmas that you run into in most of your thought experiments can be boiled down to how your character 
interprets their ideals. And again, that can be a, a way to do things, but that leaves some chance for personal growth as long as you don't go back into that Mary Sue or that edgelord type character. Ideals should be either going to change as the character grows or the character is going to be galvanized and double down on their ideals. Ideals are one of the things that I think is probably the most important of these four in terms of how you roleplay your character. Because they should be tested as the game goes on. You should find a way to... I don't really know how to say this. Because this is more of a... From a DM side, you should put your characters into situations that test their ideals. To see if they will adhere to their ideal. Or if they'll take the easy way out. Absolutely. The and, quality of the character needs to be tested. Absolutely. And it's one of those things where if your character acts counter to their ideal, that should be something that gets brought up later. That is something that your character should have to grapple with. That is something that should shift the way that your character views the world. Absolutely. Does your character hate all goblinoids and then suddenly maybe he's saved by a bugbear for whatever reason? And now he has to reconsider his thoughts on things. Maybe he belongs to a dwarven clan or she belongs to a dwarven clan and gets completely scammed over by a member of that clan. So is he going to reconsider how they're going to view those interactions now? One example that I pulled from Reddit that I read a while back, a story talking about moral absolutes. I think it was a rogue and a paladin having a conversation with one another in a bar and the paladin going on and on about how they went and cleared this layer of goblins because goblins are evil and it is our duty to do right by the good people and because they're evil that gives me the impunity to dispatch all agents of evil while the rogue is bringing up the potential moral dilemma behind all of this because when the rogue was going through and looting the bodies after they were done, he found a letter in one of the goblins' pockets in very crudely drawn and misspelled common, which was basically the goblins were getting ready to send someone out to the nearby human village to try and initiate diplomatic relations with the town. So they were going in and the goblins were trying to show that they weren't the evil goblins that everyone always assumed that they were. And then the paladin drew from that stereotypical assumption and just killed everything because they're evil without assessing the potential moral conundrum behind it. And while those are great aspects to a game, a lot of that has to do also with the maturity of the DM and the players as well. You could be running with a group of adults, you could be running with a group of college students that are PhDs in philosophy, or you could be running with a bunch of four and five-year-olds, you know, when they're just learning. So at that point, those kinds of questions that you're going to bring up, those kind of personal questions, why I like games and things that make you think and consider those in the real world. They do not always apply to every game, so sometimes you could just have a simple game. But if you have a party that is able to and willing to go through that kind of questioning as well, that can make for a very intense and interesting game. And from a DM standpoint, that is something that you have to assess the maturity of the players at your table and adjust your story accordingly. Okay, so the third of the four pillars is your bonds. 
So what does the character love? What ties them to the world? Your bonds are your reason to care. What gets you up in the morning? So often we see people talking about the stereotypical orphan murder hobo that a lot of people want to play in their games. They're an only child, both their parents are dead, so they don't have any connection to the world, so nothing that the mean DM can pull in to try and coerce them into action in one way or another. Those can be pretty interesting characters, but I find that they make kind of boring characters because they just sort of float there. They don't have anything to tether them down to the world. They have no root in the world. They have no origin from which that character can be derived. And even at that point, those murder hobo orbans, which are more often than not a rogue or a fighter, but generally a rogue, what do they love? At that point, they love money, or why are they thieving? So is it just bread? So are they wanting to steal just enough to eat every day? Or are they wanting prestige? Are they wanting comfort? So even when they try to come up with that bond that there's no emotional bond, you can still, by asking pertinent questions, figure out what a character's bond is going to be. It is the reason why they do what they do. The reason why the wizard is affiliated with this particular magical university. It is the reason why the sorcerer is trying to understand and harness their latent magical powers. It's the reason why the warlock sought out a patron. These are all of the things that you need to assess. It is what makes your character unique. Why do they do what they do? Why are they becoming an adventurer? Because adventuring isn't easy. Adventuring is a very hazardous thing. It is a very dangerous thing. It is something that kills a lot of people that try it. So why are they willing to give up their comfortable life to go on this life of uncertainty and become an adventurer? And then the final of the four pillars is flaws. So what does the character do poorly? What limitations do they have? Where do they have to rely on other people to pick up the slack? Your flaws should be meaningful and they should be common. So if your entire story is going to be taking place in the desert, don't make their one flaw that they can't swim because there's no meaningful body of water there. There's no reasonable opportunity for drowning. So that flaw doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. However, a flaw where they have very pale skin that burns and blisters real easily, that does make a good flaw for a desert adventure campaign. For an example, my paladin is allergic to cats. And that's something that just came up in gameplay one day. The story was progressing. There was a rumor in the town that the king's cat was missing came to find out later out that cat was an acronym for something else entirely but the rumor was that the king's cat was missing and so everyone and their sister was collecting up every stray cat that they could find on the street and bringing it in to show it to the king and ask if this was the king's missing cat it should also be added that the king was quite mad as an insane and not as an angry so we are standing in line in the entrance chamber for the palace, waiting for our turn to go into the audience chamber. And all of these people in line are holding cats, so there's like 50 cats in this room. And the whole storytelling kind of went into a lull, and so I just decided my character's allergic to cats. 
So she started sniffling and her eyes started watering and she started to get all puffy and, you know, the things that happen whenever you have cat allergies. That was actually a great moment of role play and a great decision for Ian to run. But then even more so, that flaw didn't just apply to that scenario. The campaign was largely run in an urban scape as cats and stuff are coming around through back alleys or through inns or things like that. This flaw did keep cropping up, not necessarily a major way, but in minor ways which was just an amazing piece of roleplay by Ian in that case. And flaws don't necessarily have to impose some sort of mechanical disadvantage. They can be purely narrative. And this is one instance where the flaw was purely narrative. I wasn't put into any potential situations where it could have been a mechanical shortcoming. I mean, potentially, if we're fighting something like a tabaxi, that would be an issue of we have to decide whether or not my character is also allergic to tabaxi, them being, you know, cat people. Right, or if they're trying to maybe stealth through a house and then, oh, by the way, there's cats, are you going to sneeze and blow stealth? Yeah, slip into a house on a stealth mission just to find out that the house is home to a crazy cat lady. And so there's 40 cats in this house, and suddenly I have an allergic reaction and give everything away. But it's something that has to actually make a difference narratively, and it has to be something that you have to remember and keep uniform throughout the story. And that uniformity really is the key to a good flaw. I can't just suddenly not be allergic to cats anymore because we found out that the house that we're trying to sneak into is home to a crazy cat lady. That flaw still has to be played out. Well, that brings me to the end of what I've got prepared for today. So I was thinking that maybe we could go ahead and uh, do a little on-the-fly demo for creating a character from scratch just using a randomly selected trait, ideal, bond, and flaw. Absolutely. And discussion like we're doing today on character building, particularly with PC character building, this is a great thing to do on your zero session. You know, you get that first session before everybody actually gets to playing. Generally, you get everyone together, kind of figure out what kind of game they're expecting to play, what they want to see in a game, what they think their characters are going to be as they start drawing up their rolling out their characters. This whole conversation we're having is a great zero session, and it kind of introduces the people if there's new players to the table, things like that. And so we went ahead and rolled this up before we started the stream just to save time. So our personality trait is I'm full of witty aphorisms and have a proverb for every occasion. Our ideal is people. I'm committed to my crewmates and not to ideals. Obviously, this one was drawn from the sailor background, but we don't necessarily have to make a sailor. Um, Right, we were discussing a crew could just as easily be a work crew or any other kind of group like that. Yeah, any sort of miners or laborers or even a military unit. Or a guild. Or a guild. So the bond is, I have a family but no idea where they are. One day, I hope to see them again. So this is what drives the character. This is why they are adventuring. This is what they're striving for. They're looking for this family that they know they have but they don't know where they are. And then the flaw is, I am too enamored of ale, wine, and other intoxicants, which I think also happens to be drawn from the sailor background, if I remember correctly. Not sure, but that can apply to so many things. I mean, you could almost make a real-world story off of this one. Absolutely. So the first thing that we thought of whenever we came up to this is, clearly this is someone who has been shanghaied and press-ganged into some sort of work detail. 
maybe they're miners, maybe they're lumberers that could maybe be laying down a rail line or maybe clearing a forest or either lumber or to create a path somewhere. They could be acting as caravan guards going through a particularly dangerous area. They could be sailors being pressed into service onto a ship that is going through a particularly dangerous stretch of sea, be it from man-made or natural obstacles, such as really rough seas and narrow passages and shallow drafts that ship can easily be dashed upon the rocks. Or maybe there's a really heavy presence of pirates within this stretch, so they need people on the ship that can fight, and there's a whole lot of hazard involved. But the witty aphorisms and proverb for every occasion, that's good for anything. Everybody knows that guy who has that witty response to everything that he hears. Absolutely. And that's a fairly easy one to play with, too. So that can be a lot of fun. You can use that one as much or as little as you care to. And so I actually happen to have a questionnaire that I send out to my players whenever... I'm creating a new campaign, something to help them discover who their characters are. And this is one that I'm going to post whenever this goes live. And I was thinking we might be able to go through this questionnaire and try and figure out exactly who this character is. All right. So we're going to go ahead and skip over the first question. The first question was your character's name, age, gender, and class. We're not necessarily making a player character here. We're not necessarily... Picking a race and class and gender and name and age. All of those things that are pretty core to the identity of a player character. I'm thinking we just keep this a little more generic. We can get into this a little bit later if we really need to. I mean, for the age, I was going to say I'm assuming that they're going to be a little bit older if they have a family somewhere. But they could be younger. They could be someone who is abducted as a child and pressed into service, and they're looking for their parents. Possibly, yeah. I mean, bad things happen at any given age. People get lost all the time. So the next question on the list is, what does your character do for a living? So I guess that's us figuring out what sort of thing that they're doing. I think it feels like They're a merchant marine. Merchant marine? Yeah, they're a merchant marine. Yeah, I was going to say, it very much feels like, given what we've got... This is someone who works with their hands, uses their body to make their living, manual labor of some form or fashion. Well, they're a press gang that goes in with their flaw as well. You know, they're a press gang, so they got stuck and then now they're doing it. They don't really know what else to do, so they just kept with it. Or this could just be a fairly recent thing as well. These are all just options that we're throwing out here. So the next one is, where was your character raised and who raised them? So this is pulling in potential for family members. Our bond has a family. So were they raised by their family or were they taken away from their family and then raised by some third party? I would say they were raised by their family, but they were still taken relatively young. And they're nowhere near where they were raised at. They were taken to a different continent or opposite end of the world type thing. So how much wealth did your character grow up with, and has that amount of wealth changed recently? They were firmly working class, and you're still firmly working class. If anything, maybe a little poor, because you do have the flaw that you do like the ales and wines and alcohols, and those tend to get expensive. Right. This is playing into that 18th century, 19th century sailor stereotype of you put into port, you get your pay, you go ashore, you drink your pay, you get back on the boat, and you work until you get to your next port of call. So the next question is, who is your closest friend slash relative, and why are they important to you? 
probably be one of your crewmates. Right. I think that would be someone in your crew or potentially multiple people in your crew based off of your ideal. Uh, Because because you're committed to your crewmates. You're involved in situations where you routinely have to go into dangerous situations and you have to know that you can rely on the people around you to do their job and they can rely on you to do your job so that everybody gets to go home at the end of the day. And then tying back in also with the bond, they are as close to families that you know and have. So next one is, who is your biggest rival slash enemy and why do they oppose you? I would say the captain that shanghaied you. Yeah, I was going to say the person, whoever it was that kidnapped you and press ganged you. They're the person who took you away from your family and you may not have the resources to openly oppose them right now. But that couldn't be what you're trying to save money for. You're trying to save up to get off of this ship. You're trying to look for a way to get away from this ship in a way that they're not going to send bounty hunters after you to drag you back to the boat. Another way you could do that, too, is that you were press ganged and then you've since able to change ships and now you're wanting to go and get revenge of one sort or another. And that would actually lead into a nice little piratey campaign you could do at that point because you're going to be looking for this captain and his vessel to exact your revenge. Or, and hear me out on this, so the ship that you initially served on, the captain of that ship was not the person who kidnapped you. The kidnapper was a middleman who would collect people and basically sell them into service onto ships. And so... You have already dealt with the captain who bought your contract, and now you're hunting down the person who kidnapped you because they're the only person who you know knows about your family and might be able to tell you where they are. That could work just as well. So I would almost say that the person who actually kidnapped you would be your biggest enemy. We could go as far as when they did that, they kidnapped your whole family at once and then split you guys up amongst different vessels. Yeah, that would work too, because there is a historic precedent for that, especially with the African slave trade. Entire families would be sold into slavery in Africa. They'd be brought across to slave markets in Georgia, South Carolina, and a different family would purchase each different family member The family would be split up and then they would never see each other again. Right. So, yeah, that fits with our story and what we're developing really well right now. Okay. Why did your character choose their class? We haven't assigned a class to this particular character. Maybe we should. What are you thinking? I'm trying to think what would be good. Uh, So you're a merchant marine, so you're fighting on the ship. I mean, you do sail, but that's less your role versus preventing other boarders and pirates from getting on. I want to suggest the swashbuckler. Just because that if we're going to go stereotype, we might as well go full stereotype here. Okay, so yeah, we could do that. So the swashbuckler, it was originally a fighter archetype in 3rd edition. It became a rogue archetype in 5th edition. And that would play into the, I'm full of witty aphorisms and a proverb for every occasion. But in addition, you could do a college of swords bard you could do a warlock of some sort with an aquatic themed patron that would be really good if you want to go a bit out into left field a sea circle of the land druid someone based off of oceans and seas that would be really interesting that'd actually be a lot of fun to play and then that would further enable the abduction origin because if you were 
a druid from a family of druids, you would be not necessarily transient, but you would be nomadic. So you wouldn't necessarily have roots to tie down to, which would go in further to the difficulty of finding difficulty family. in finding them. Because yeah, if, that if they were really if well. they were a nomadic people, it would be difficult to find them because then you would have to figure out where they were going to in order to find them again. Depending on how you did a paladin could work, but it, that would be a yeah, lot harder to like, manage. Like an Oath of Ancients paladin, maybe? Tied to the sea? That or even just an Oath of Vengeance? Actually, this was something that came out fairly recently. Again, going back to Critical Role. In the current season, Matt Mercer made a paladin oath specifically for Ford. And I remember seeing it on Twitter a while back. I didn't actually get a chance to read it. But something like that. Because I want to draw that nautical inspiration into this character in their class. And whatever you pick, because, I mean, again, there are a ton of options. Almost even a ranger at some point. Because, again, with the the seas are the wilds. Right. And also with the ranger because they do archery or two-weapon fighting, typically. Those are the two big archetypes that you run into. And a lot of naval combat pre-canon involved you find the ship that you're going to attack, you ram it, you board it, and you fight everybody on the boat until either one ship is defeated or surrenders or both ships sink (laughs) or what have you. Tactics would be modified a bit because there's magic involved, so you're potentially going to have wizards on board the ship that are going to be throwing fireballs and counter spells and what have you, acting as a cannon would. But we're getting a bit off topic now. Also, I really, really want a small octopus companion so I can octopus people in the face. (laughs) All right, next question is, what is your character's biggest fear? Drowning would almost be too easy. That's saying a fear of storms. I don't know if that'd be his biggest fear, but I think a fear of tempests would make a lot of sense. He could have a phobia based around a specific race, depending on what race a person abducted him. If it was not a human, if it was some very visibly different race, like an orc or a tiefling, a tabaxi or something of that nature. So they just develop a fear and general mistrust of all members of that race. How about this? We had decided, but if we go with the line where they came from, maybe like a circle of druids, maybe he is hyper superstitious. And so anything that could be considered a bad omen. I like that. That brings me into the point I was going to make. Fears can be very abstract. He could simply be afraid of never finding his family again. He could be afraid of people being punished on his behalf for his actions. So that may be part of the reason why he didn't just up and leave. Because he is committed to his crewmates, he didn't want his crewmates to be punished because he left. And that would be perfectly reasonable as well. It doesn't have to be a specific concrete fear like, oh, I'm afraid of spiders. Mainly because that plays into a question later on in the questionnaire. But this is where you get your big picture fears. Your very abstract sort of things. Fear of failure. Fear of disappointing someone. Those sorts of things. That was actually one of my favorite episodes. If you go way, way back, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but the old Batman the Animated Series, when the Scarecrow was going through and trying to figure out what Batman's greatest fear was. And his fear actually wasn't the bats, it was the fear of disappointing his parents. So that was actually a really, really good episode of that animated series. What handicaps does your character have? 
physical, mental, and or emotional. Well, I think we're definitely toying with a bit of alcoholism at the very least. Oh, absolutely. He definitely has a substance abuse issue that is definitely going to be something that he is dealing with. Of course, now that I'm saying this out loud, this is something where we're going to have to be careful because especially if we end up going with a druid because druidism in dungeons and dragons plays pretty closely to shamanism which brings us close to native american culture and now with alcoholism we could be running into perpetuating a negative stereotype so we're gonna have to be really careful what we're doing here i didn't even see that until just now that would depend on how you played the character i suppose absolutely yeah so that is something again it's easy to slip into not intending to do it And it's something that you have to be mindful of and watch what you're doing. The other thing, too, is while these are all great questions, any one of these you can add or neglect. While we are going fairly in-depth and we are writing a fairly in-depth write-up for a character, you can, at the end of the day, just say, hey, you know, I want those Bonflaw trait inspiration, and I'm just going to go with those four things and plant them there, too. So, I mean... You don't necessarily have to. So if you don't like the way a question sounds or you don't feel fully comfortable with something, you can just as easily step back and say, I think I'm going to pass on that. And you can always come back later as your character is coming together, as you are learning who your character is, because you're not going to know exactly who your character is whenever you sit down at the table the first time. Your character is going to almost be a living, breathing entity in and of itself. And you have to figure out who they are in order to play them. Each of these questions are sort of thing that they're intended to be a tool to help you figure out who your character is. You don't necessarily have to answer all of them. You don't even have to use this questionnaire if you don't want to. This is just something that I use to help my players figure out who their characters are and to help me figure out who their characters are. So I can do work on my end as a DM to incorporate their character better into the world. Yes, and these are all great things to consider. And as I've said many times before, if you've got students, these are great writing prompts. We're making a character today. Write me a story about your character and then answer these questions just to come up with a character prompt. Next one is, what is your character's favorite food or drink? And what is their least favorite? Again, obviously, we're dealing with the high-end spirits for this one because that's been built in. I don't know that that would be his favorite thing, though. Not their favorite? I don't know. No, I think because we're dealing with this character as having an alcoholism problem, he has an addiction. And so he is using alcohol out of necessity because of his addiction. That doesn't necessarily mean that he enjoys it. I'm going to put out and say that he has gotten to a point in his addiction to where it no longer gives him joy to consume alcohol. He does it because that's what he has to do to function. Okay. Then say favorite food is maybe an old family meal or something like that. Something because again, if he is on a different part of the world, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to move and then what they make back at home, they don't make here anymore type thing. I'm going to go out on a limb here. If we're pursuing this druid aspect, because for some reason, the druid is just clicking with me. The druid does click fairly well, yes. Um, The thing that I'm going to propose is marshmallows. His favorite thing is marshmallows. Because modern marshmallows are just puffed up sugar stuff. But there is actually a plant called the marshmallow. And the original marshmallows are 
the spongy sweet stuff on the inside of the roots of the marshmallow plant. So you harvest it, you dig it up, you peel the skin off, and then you have this sweet, spongy root pulp. That's That's random and odd and beautifully brilliant, and then it gives the players to sit there and have some marshmallows at the table and enjoy themselves, and that's perfect. So that's what I'm going to propose is his favorite food is marshmallows. I love it. Well done. Very, very well done. Do we even want to bother with the least favorite right now? No, we can skip that one. I think we can skip that one. Does your character have any phobias or allergies? Again, we were talking about the different fears and stuff. I've definitely with superstition, so anything that's related as a quote-unquote bad omen. This will give you an opportunity to look up sailor superstitions and just make a whole list of sailor superstitions. And whenever something comes up, just pull something from the list of Oh yeah, this thing is happening, so we're going to have a good time today. That sort of thing. So rather than having a phobia, just having them be very superstitious. I really like that aspect that you put into it. Next question is, why is your character currently in the location where the adventure begins? Again, this is for a full party coming together. This gives you more than just you meet in a tavern. This gives your character a reason to be where they are. One of my favorite things to do as a DM is to start off my characters as prisoners. So why did they get arrested? What are they doing in jail? How did they come to be in jail? That sort of thing. Ian really, really likes the Skyrim opening. It's not just the Skyrim opening. It's been relatively the same opening for the last three Elder Scrolls games. A little bit less in Daggerfall, you end up shipwrecked. You're actually a messenger for the Emperor at the start of Daggerfall. But from Morrowind, you start off as a prisoner who just got released. Oblivion, you start off as a prisoner in the prison. You get your pardon as you're going through with the Emperor. And then Skyrim, you start off in a carriage with a bunch of rebels going to the Headsman's Block. But I do, I like the prisoner start because it gives the characters a reason to cooperate. It gives them a common goal at the start for cooperation. And that is a good mechanic. I generally tend to be people that hired up like a flyer or notice board or something like that, which is another way. But that can be a different episode as how to start a campaign. Oh yeah, that's a whole episode in and of its own. So why are they currently in the location where the adventure begins? For this character, I'd say it's just the current port of call. Yeah, that's a simple answer. Maybe they finally earned enough coin to buy out their contract, and so now they are on shore for the first time in a long time without a ship that they have to get back on. Or perhaps they survived a shipwreck. Maybe the ship that they were shanghaied into was lost either by storm or combat, and they either had a buoy or a dinghy, or they were able to get on a life vessel or otherwise swam up with wreckage and now they're on shore okay or playing off of a naval combat pirates attacked their ship they fought off the pirates but most of the crew was killed and so they limped the boat back to the closest port that they could find and they've just put ashore and they've sold the inventory of the ship to pay to come into port and they divvied up what was left and the crew is going their separate ways Or maybe the crew is the party. That would actually be a pretty interesting way to start a campaign is the party is the survivors of this crew from this merchant vessel that fought off pirates and they've just finally managed to limp their boat ashore. He could be sitting on the dock wishing he was in Sherbrooke now. All right, Barrett. 
Um, <laughs> Barrett. Well, Barrett's dead. Which Barrett? Final Fantasy Barrett? I'm no. I'm missing that reference. It's Barrett's Privateers. That's the name of the song that you're referencing. Oh, I didn't know the name of the song. Okay. I just know the song, but yes. But yeah, Barrett's Privateers, I mean, if you listen to that song, it's actually an interesting little song. But yeah, that would fill in with most of our things we've been building with this character actually fairly well. And I mean, if we wanted to go completely off of the Barrett's Privateers song, they would have a physical handicap as they wouldn't have any legs. Because that's part of the whole theme of the song is that at the end of everything, the ship sinks and the main mast comes and crushes both of his legs. And so now he's a 23-year-old man who has no legs, who's just finally managed to return home. He's not at home. That's the whole point. He's in a different port. No, at the very end of everything is, see, it's been five years since I sailed away and I just made Halifax yesterday. That's the last verse of the song. Okay. So he just finally made it back home. It took him five years to get back home with no legs, but he finally makes it back home at the end of the song. And he is understandably very bitter about the whole ordeal. Very much so, yes. But anyway, two questions left. Next one is, what is your character's biggest ambition and why? I think that our Bond has just about answered this. His biggest ambition is to find his family and just to have his whole family back together again. And the why should be fairly obvious. One would hope. And then the last question on the questionnaire is, does your character have a secret goal? If so, what is it? I think we had talked about revenge against the person that rounded him and his family up. Yeah, I think so. I think that would be, he would be portraying his search for this person as being purely, this is the only person I know who would know where they went. So he's the person I have to find to try and get a starting point for my search. But the real reason why he's looking for him is because he wants to kill him. He wants to kill him dead. Or even better, to ruin them and leave oh, them yeah. alive and, and destitute. I think that would actually be a better one. Sort of almost... Uh, almost like a Count of Monte Cristo type thing. Ruin him to such a point that he ends up getting press-ganged into a ship himself. Yeah, just absolutely stripping him of wealth and power. Breaking him down to the point where everything that he has gained by selling you into servitude is stripped from him and he is brought to where you were. It is a, a flipping of the table. Absolutely. But yeah, I think that'd be pretty good. That was an interesting character that we drummed up. I, yeah, that was actually... I like this. I really do too. So yeah, I mean, that the questionnaire you have gives you a lot of answers. And again, you don't have to go in as much detail as we did on each and every one of these. Again, you can put as much or as little thought as you want into your character. But the more thought you put into character, the more life that character is going to have. And as we said, we don't have a race. We don't have a name. We've been referring to this person as he the whole time. Doesn't necessarily have to be male. But, I mean, we're a couple of white dudes, so we're going to default to white dude. That happens frequently, unfortunately. Fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know how you want to phrase that. But egocentric is a thing. And you obviously want to see yourself in your character, so... Ian and I are going to see our characters largely as a white dude, because we're white dudes. But if you're a different person of color, male, female, trans, however you want to do that, make that character you if you want. Or make that character completely not you. So if you enjoy what you're hearing, or if you have something that you want us to cover, go ahead and send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com, or send us a direct message at UCT Homebrew on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Let us know what you want to hear, and we will tailor what we are putting out to what our audience wants. 
Also, if you get a chance, like and subscribe to the podcast. It'll help increase our visibility so we can reach out to more members uh, so we can bring you more content as well. Yeah, just about everywhere that you can get podcasts, wherever you're getting your podcast from, if you would give us a rating, give us a like, subscribe, a review if you can. Thank you for joining us. Next week, we're going to be talking about our NPC characters, so be sure to join us for that. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.